few years ago, I was asked to fill the pulpit in a pinch-hitting basis of a Methodist church. The other side of Lexington is a rural church. I remember preaching this particular occasion. It was during Holy Week, and I was preaching that morning on the subject of the cross. And I thought we would end that service this, that morning by having the congregation sing uh, the song that you just heard sung for you, Isaac Watts' When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. But I introduced the song this way. I, After I concluded my message, I said, I believe there's only one song that's really appropriate to be sung this morning. Furthermore, I suggested, I believe that if you pulled any group of Christians who were any way knowledgeable about Christian hymnody, you would discover that this particular song that we're going to sing, no doubt a favorite of many of you, would be right at the top of the charts. So I said, will you all please join me in that old favorite of Isaac Watts when I survey the wondrous cross? No one knew it. I don't know how many of you have ever heard me sing. <laughs> or if you've ever heard me do a solo on When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. But I kind of laughed to myself when I just heard it sung the way it was supposed to be sung. And we thank you for that ministry, dear brother. I want to read a portion of a psalm tonight to get us started. I will make occasional references to it. It's the 32nd psalm. And I would like to read the first five verses of this psalm. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And then my text for tonight is found in 1 John chapter 1. I'd like to read verses 8 and 9, but I'm going to be focusing on verse 9. John says, verse 8, chapter 1, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. 
Now here's my text. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There are four points made in the text, which is the essence of what I am going to share with you tonight. Three of them are explicitly mentioned in verse 9. One of them is inferred. And what these four have in common is there's something of a chain that describe to us the way we get into fellowship and union and communion with God. And so let me begin tonight with the first of these. Of course, the emphasis of the text, verse 9, is on the word confession. But I want to put that second. I'm going to give you four C words tonight. So, of course, the text begins. John begins by saying, if we confess our sins. But I think we need to begin even back further than that. I want to suggest to you tonight that most of us will never, never get to the place of confessing our sins until we are convicted of our sins. And that's the first C word that I would like to leave with you tonight. And that is the word conviction. I certainly would not stand before you tonight as a great student of revivals. But at least one thing I do know is that behind every great movement of the Spirit of God there has been a conviction for sin that has driven God's people to their faces before God in prayer. And wherever there is the movement of God in evangelism, there comes a spirit of conviction of sin upon sinners. And I do not believe that we can have genuine revival a legitimate moving of God's Spirit unless there is a real and authentic conviction of sin. The great revival, not to live in the past, but the revival about which you've heard so much, the movement of God's Spirit in February of 1970, about 15 months before I moved to this community. The one thing I do recall among the many, many things that I can recall is that there were exhibited both among students and among faculty a consciousness, a conviction of sin in our lives that had to be acknowledged before God, that had to be acknowledged before one another, that had to be acknowledged to parents and to siblings over the telephone. And so I want to stress tonight that preceding confession 
confession of sin is the conviction that we do have sins which are obnoxious to God and which need to be confessed in His holy presence. Now how does this conviction come about? This afternoon, one of the things I did is looked up my New Testament concordance. And I looked for every place I could find the word convict. And I made this interesting discovery that the New Testament gives us at least five instruments through which God brings a conviction of sin into somebody's life. Let me run those five by you. And maybe they should not necessarily be kept in separate categories. Maybe they all just blend together. But how does God bring us to that place where we have an incredibly concrete awareness of disobedience and unchristlikeness in our life? Here's the first the New Testament top tells us. In John chapter 16, Jesus was talking to his disciples about the fact that the time was coming when he would shortly have to leave them. That his stay with them was not permanent. It was transitory. But Jesus also went on to say, not only am I going to leave you, but I'm not going to abandon you. For when I go, I'm going to send someone else to represent me. I'm going to send, and then there's that interesting word that John uses, I'm going to send the P-A-R-A-C-L-E-T-E. -E. I'm going to send the paraclete. Translated a whole bunch of different ways, and nobody's still certain how the best way to translate it. Take your pick. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. Catch the paraclete. The comforter, the advocate, but we know, however we translate it, Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit. And he says, and when I leave, I will send the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes, let me tell you what he's going to do. He rhymed off a whole bunch of things. But Jesus said, first of all, and I think it's interesting that this is, first of all, Jesus said, and when the Holy Spirit comes, he is going to convict of sin. Now, to be sure, the Holy Spirit has umpteen types of ministries. But at the very top of the list, Jesus said, wherever you have the presence of the Holy Spirit, there will be a corresponding conviction of sin. And the more we have of the presence of the Holy Spirit, the more there will be that conviction of sin. So that's one way in which we come to that awareness through the presence and the dynamic working of the Holy Spirit. Here's a second way. Paul writes to Timothy 
2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, Paul says to young Timothy, preach the Word. Be prepared. In season. Out of season. Convict. Convict. Some of you don't have that word, but it's the exact same word that Jesus used about the Holy Spirit when He said He will come and He will convict of sin. Preach the Word. Timothy, preach the Word. And as you preach the Word, conviction will come. That's one reason, isn't it, why it's important for us to be in these meetings. For as the Word is sung, and as the Word is played, and as the Word is preached, there is a chance for conviction to establish a beachhead in your heart and in my own heart. So it's under the work of the Holy Spirit. It's by the preaching of the Word. Here's a third way. James chapter 2, verse 9. Let me give you a little background to that. In chapter 2, you may recall, James talks about a situation where a poor man and a rich man enter into church at the same time. Do you remember what the ushers did? In that hypothetical situation? They ushered the rich person to the front seats. Now that doesn't mean these people here tonight in the front seats were talking megabucks. But in that story we read that the ushers ushered the rich man to the front seat, to the prominent place where he would be noticed by everybody, but, but, the, but the poor man, they stuck somewhere in the back. After all, what usher wants to lead a tattered, smelly street person six feet away from the preacher? Now, James says that's wrong. That you would show partiality. That you would fawn over the rich. And you would hold yourself aloof in arrogance from the poor. That's partiality. That's not Christ-likeness. And then James goes on to say in verse 9, if you show partiality, you are committing sin and you are convicted by the law. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the preaching of the Word. And it's the law of God which arouses and brings conviction. Can I illustrate that for you? You may be riding down the interstate, unaware that your speedometer is moving up and up into the post-65 range. I've, I've had the experience of driving out on 29, where it's 55, and having bicycles pass me. <laughs> and you're either engaged in interesting conversation with a passenger, or there's some nice music being played on the radio or your cassette 
tape. And you're really, you're really unaware of the inching up of the speedometer. Until, to your shock and your surprise, what appears in your back window but a flashing light. You are convicted by the law. Let me give you the name of Charles G. Finney. My colleague, Jim Hamilton. Some of you call him my brother. If he were here tonight and I said, uh, talk to us about Charles Finney, he, said, he would probably say to us, how long do I have, three or four hours? You know, I was interested to note that during the, the bicentennial issue, there you are back there, greeting Jim, three hours later. In the bicentennial issue of Time magazine, as I recall, if I have my facts correct, the editors attempted to list what they considered the hundred most significant events in 200 years of the history of America. How would you pick out a hundred events that have in some way shaped the direction of life in America for the last two centuries? As I recall, only two of them had anything to do with religion. Isn't that sad? 98 had nothing Now, I don't remember what the other one of those two was, but I do remember what one of them was. It was the preaching of Charles G. Finney in upstate New York and in some of the New England states around the turn of the century. A lawyer with a lawyer's fine mind for argument and logic. And if I have my facts, if I have my idea correct at this point, I recall that Finney said when he went into a, co a community to hold a meeting like we're having this week, let's say it lasted for 30 days. Now you may disagree with him, but it brought results. He said the first 29 days I would preach the law of God. The law which you've broken and the law which you violated. And then on the 30th day, the last day, I preach on the grace of God. Is that essentially correct? You are convicted by the law, the written law of God, that you have sinned. Number four. Here's an interesting one. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, if your brother sins against you, if your brother does something, your roommate, your homemate, a friend, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and, it's the same word, convict him. 
Now, we don't translate it that way, but it's exactly the same way. How does God bring conviction into your life through the ministry of other concerned Christians? Some of the greatest awareness of unconfessed sin in my own life has been brought to my attention, not by myself because I was too blind to see it and maybe too close to see it, but it was brought to my attention by a deeply concerned brother or sister in Christ who said, Brother Fick, I must tell you that you're doing something that is damaging your relationship to Christ. If you have a brother who sins against you, go and talk to him and convict him. Tell him his fault. And the last that I could find, and I leave this last deliberately so because I'm not certain about it. Do you remember that story of the woman who was taken in adultery and she was dragged into the presence of Jesus? Now some of you have Bibles that do not even include that story. Or you might have it in small type at the bottom of your page. And some of you tonight just have regular Bibles. It's there like any other verse. But do you remember the incident, don't you? This woman is dragged by some religious groups before Jesus. And as she's thrown on the ground before him, they say, Master, Moses commanded that this woman should be stoned because of adultery. What's your position? And Jesus did not reply, did he? He simply bent to the ground. We don't know why. And he began to scribble or to write in the dirt with his finger. And they pushed him. They pushed him for an answer. Tell us, tell us, what are you going to do? with this adulteress that we have captured for you. And you remember the story goes on to say that Jesus did respond and he said, all right, here's what I'll tell you. I want those of you who are without sin to bend down and pick up some of these stones and send them thundering down upon her body. And if you read through it in certain versions of the Bible, chapter 8 of John, verse 9, we read these words, And those who heard these words of Jesus, being convicted by their conscience, being convicted by their conscience, went out. They just slaked away. God's first work is to bring a conviction of sin. Did you remember that interesting phrase I read from Psalm 32? Here's one place I want to plug into Psalm 32 before we're finished tonight. David said, I knew there was within me this sin, but I tried to keep quiet about it. I refused to acknowledge that it was really there, and I certainly didn't want to say anything about it. 
But the quieter I try to be about it, and the more taciturn I try to become, the heavier, do you remember this phrase I read for it? The heavier was your hand upon me. You know? The heavier was your hand upon me. That's conviction. Do you remember the story of the woman at the well? Who after her life was changed by Jesus, she left her water pot behind. She went running back to her village. You remember that part of the story, do you? And she said, let me tell you about a man who told me everything I ever did. She did not say, let me tell you about a man who told me where to worship. She did not say, tell me, let me tell you about a man who told me how to worship. She said, let me tell you about a man who told me everything that I ever did. That's conviction. That's bringing all of the old skeletons out of the closet. Conviction. But we go beyond conviction to now 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. Here's the second word. We go now from conviction to confession. Having had the covering torn away from a lot of these inside skeletons and sins, John says, but if we confess our sins, and so we go from conviction to confession. Now you'll notice John does not say if you admit your sins. He says if you confess your sins. Now, do you think the word admit and confess are actually synonyms? Well, I looked it up in my thesaurus this afternoon. And do you think the thesaurus that I checked agreed that admit and confess are synonyms? Yes, they did. I looked under admit. Synonyms. Confess. Then I flipped over to confess. Yeah, I'm flipping over, aren't I? A to C. Flipping over this way. Uh, you know, it's meditation on the alphabet. And underneath it, confess. Synonyms. Admit. But you know, a lot of words that are maybe understood as synonyms and may be classified as synonyms, when you really get to the bottom of it, really are not. Let me illustrate. Those of you ladies who do not shop in the expensive boutiques in Lexington, which includes probably 103% of you, I mean, those of you who do not need the most expensive outfit 
shekels can buy to wear to class. Those of you who shop at stores like, well, take your pick. Any of the shopping malls you find here. You get a good buy. A very, a very, very nice dress. Now, in my, my dictionary tells me that the word cheap and inexpensive are synonyms. I don't think you'd have any problems referring to your dress as inexpensive. But if I were ever in a conversation with Shirley beside me and saying she's wearing a dress that's cheap, I mean, you know what would happen? I'd end up in the clinic. <laughs> and I think that's the same difference. And so let me deliberately tonight underscore with a couple of lines that Jesus Christ does not call us to admit our sins. He calls us to confess our sins. What's the difference? Well, I think one difference is this. You can admit to something and smile about it. But you can confess about something and only sob to it. To, to admit means to concede. I grant you the accuracy of what you're saying. But I want to tell you tonight, God doesn't want a concession. God wants a confession. Confession means that I don't simply concede the validity of what he is saying, but I admit my guilt and my responsibility for it. Proverbs 28.13 says, He who conceals his transgression will never prosper. But the one who confesses them and forsakes them will obtain God's mercy. It's interesting that this word confess is used 26 times in the New Testament. Ten of those 26 are used by John in his various writings, somewhat about 40%. Interestingly, this is the only one that we can find where John uses this particular word in confessing sins. If you will confess your sins. Now let me tell you literally what the word confess means. I do not stand before you as a Greek expert by any means tonight. But I do know the word is homologeo. Homologeo. You recognize the word homo as opposed to hetero. Homo means, well, you know, it means the same. You put it as a prefix on the front of a word, and it means the same. Logeo means to speak or to say. 
Bible very literally. Confess means to say the same thing. Let's work that into this verse, shall we, tonight? What is John saying to us? If I say the same thing about my sins that God has already said about my sins, that's confession. If I say about my sins as God has already said that they are obnoxious, a stench in his nostrils, that they are unacceptable to him, then I am confessing my sins. Conviction? Confession? Thirdly, cancellation. There's the third word. If I and you, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Forgiveness means cancellation. Did you know that's what this particular Greek word for forgiveness means? It means to let go. When God forgives your sins, He lets go of them. It means to release. When God forgives your sins, He releases them. Are you willing tonight to release them? God wants to let them go. Are you willing to let them go? Matter of fact, this word for forgiveness, a verb here, but looking at it as a noun is a very interesting one. Do you remember, those of you who have a little smattering of the Old Testament, the year of Jubilee? Do you remember what happened in the year of Jubilee? I'll tell you one thing that happened. All the financial debts that you had accumulated were wiped out. How many would like a year of Jubilee at Asbury's business office? See Charlie Fisco with his hands down. Yeah, it's, it's Jubilee, it's the year of release. It's the year of letting go. It's the year of cancellation. And the word that's used there in the Greek of the Old Testament, what we call the Septuagint, is the word that we have here for forgiveness. That's what forgiveness is. It's cancellation. It's a pardoning. It's a wiping out of the debt. And why can God forgive us? And why can God cancel our sins? John says for two reasons. God can forgive you tonight because, number one, He is faithful. And number two, He is just. Don't you find those adjectives in verse 9? If we confess our sins, He is A, faithful, B, just to forgive us our sins. I want to say to you tonight that God is for you, not only in terms of what He can do for you, but God is for you tonight in terms of who He is. It's not only things He can do, it's things that He is that you have going for you tonight. He's faithful. He's faithful. You know what that means? 
His promises are totally reliable and dependable. What a tremendous contrast to study the beautiful promises of the Lord Jesus with the empty, hollow promises that are often made in the world of commercial advertising. Have you ever listened to those commercials? Seriously? I hope not. At least in terms of what they promise. If you drink this beer, if you shampoo with this product, if you shower with this soap, if you fly this airline, and all sorts of lavish promises are made. You know, I mean, I, mean, I remember one of them in college and about a soap, and it, it said that it was, you know, if you just shower with it, the girls would be a, a path to your dorm, and I tried, it didn't work. Big promises. No delivery. But God is faithful. He will never promise unless He can deliver. And when God says, if you'll confess your sins, I'd like to cancel them. You can trust His Word explicitly. God is faithful. Great is thy faithfulness. Oh God our Father. And God is not only faithful, says John, He's just. And the word just means a whole bunch of different things, but having done a little study on where it occurs in the New Testament this afternoon, elsewhere in the Gospel of John, let me tell you what it, at least one thing it means. It means that He's honest. A person in the book of Proverbs who is just is a person who works with scales. That you know he's not he's not ripping you off. He's an honest businessman. God is not only faithful and reliable. He's honest. He's honest. Conviction. Confession. Cancellation, and fourthly, cleansing. If we confess our sins, John says, God is faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all forms of unrighteousness. It goes from talking about forgiving us our sins to cleansing us from all unrighteousness. Now, I, I let, let me admit my ignorance here. I'm not quite sure. I'll let Dr. Coker set me straight afterwards. But I'm not really sure here whether John is talking about using parallelism in which the second line says the same as the first line, or whether he's talking about two different things. Is it parallelism or sequence? I don't know. I really, can't, I really don't know. Let me plead ignorance. But in my mind, there is a difference between being forgiven and being cleansed. 
Let me give you three differences between those two. First of all, forgiveness is something that takes place in the heart of God. Cleansing is something that takes place in your heart. That's one difference between the two. Here's the second difference between the two. Forgiveness deals with the wrongs that I have done. Cleansing deals with the wrongs that I am. And here's a third difference, and I know that you can add 12, 15 more. I'm just getting the ball rolling. Forgiveness gives me standing before God. Acceptance with God. Cleansing gives me communion and fellowship with God. Do you know what it means to be clean? To be clean means to have a state where there is nothing there that shouldn't be there. Clean air. What's, what makes clean air clean? There are no pollutants there. Clean water. What makes clean water clean? There are no contaminants there. And what makes a heart clean? That there is nothing there that destroys and undercuts one's relationship to Jesus Christ. I heard this prayer recently. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, I want to be as clean as the blood of Christ can make a redeemed sinner. What a beautiful prayer. Simple. Lord Jesus, I want to be as clean, as pure, as cleansed. I want to be as clean as the blood of Christ can make a redeemed sinner. Conviction. Confession. Cancellation and cleansing. My brothers and sisters in Christ at Asbury College, if we confess our sins, God the Father is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And he can do that for you tonight.